Okay, folks, we are in Lesson 5 today. We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now, this is, this is a really important lesson. In fact, if you normally just kind of, kind of half take in things, you really need to give full attention to the first ten verses of Ephesians today. Because in reality, what he's going to be talking about today is who you are. Now that is significant because how you live your life, how you relate to others, really comes out of your view of yourself. Do you understand what I'm saying? So if you have a poor view of yourself, that's going to affect poorly in every other area of your life, especially your relationships and so forth. And what I have found over the years as I've pastored is most Christians have no understanding whatsoever about who they are in Jesus. Period. They have no understanding of what life was like before Christ. And they have no understanding of what life is now because of Jesus. And what Paul does, and this is a key doctrinal position, place here in this, remember we're looking at doctrinal issues in the first three chapters. This is a key doctrinal teaching here that's going to help you later on when you try to live your life for Jesus. Because so many of us, when you talk about who you are, a lot of times what you do is you look back on your past failures. And so you view yourself in light of what you did before. So a lot of you condemn yourselves. And you think that God condemns you. Or God is condemning in his, of the way he, he looks at you because of the stuff you've done before. But we're going to see today that that is not true. It's far from true. Yes, you were one way before, and we're going to talk about that here in a moment. It's going to help you to understand where others are at today who don't know Jesus. But you are someone different now. He has made you someone different now. In fact, Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, will say that you are now a what? A new creation. So you are someone different now. So what does that mean? So that's what we're going to look at today, the believer's identity. Now, as we begin this passage, I need to make a note. It's on the top of your lesson sheet there. If you're using a King James Bible or if you're using a New King James Version like I'm using, you'll notice within the first phrase there that some of the words, he made alive, is in italics. How many of you have that in italics in your Bible? Now, what that here, just so you understand, when you see something in italics in, in your translation, what that means is, is that that phrase or that word was not in the original, what would be known as the Greek documents. The translators added that in so that you would understand what he's saying. So those are not words from the text. It's not from the Greek text. If I were to show you a Greek text, it does not have that phrase made alive there. Basically what the Greek text says, so let's look, look at verse 1 there. The Greek says, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's what the Greek text says. All of the Greek manuscripts all say that. So the, what the translators did is they, they want, they're trying to, they, they added those three words in there to give you a comprehension of what he's talking about here. So we're going to look at that today. So first of all, I want you to notice with me your old condition. Your old condition, which is, we see in verses 1 through 3. 
And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Okay, so here's what I want you to see. We're going to look here, first of all, the old condition of the man. First thing he's going to point out is that we were dead. Now, what does he mean by that? We were spiritually dead. We were spiritually dead. Now, let me help you to understand what that spiritually dead means. Because that, that just seems kind of abstract. We're spiritually dead. What does that mean? We're walking zombies? When we talk about the dead, the living dead, we think of zombies, right? He's not talking about zombies. There's no such thing as a zombie. What he's talking about here is a relational death. When he talks about that we were spiritually dead to God, it's really drawing your mind back, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 2 and 3, when Adam and Eve sinned. Now remember the prohibition God gave to them? He said, Don't, you can have any fruit of the garden, but if you eat of this fruit, you will surely what? Die. Now they ate. Did they die? Not a physical death yet. They died a relational death. You understand what I'm saying? It was a spiritual death, a relational death. They were separated from God. So when we talk about a spiritual death here, we're talking about a relational death. So, for instance, in our area, I'll help you to understand what I'm talking about. In our area, we have, depending on what part of the area you're from or where you work or whatever, how many of you see the Amish? Okay. The Amish have something where people are dead to them. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Okay. This particularly happens because there's a phenomenon that's happening among the Amish that's pretty interesting and that is abandonment by, their, uh, by the males, where the males become English. They leave their wives. I know of one particular gentleman, 14 kids, left his wife. He became English. Okay? Now, here's what the Amish community does when somebody leaves the Amish community. What do they do to them, folks? What does that mean? Yeah, to them now, that guy is, quote, dead. Now, he's walking around. He ain't dead. There's, you know what I'm saying? But what kind of death is it? It's a relational death. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is what he's saying. In our old condition, you were dead. You were relationally dead to God. You were spiritually dead to Him. Do you understand what I'm saying? So when you look at somebody who doesn't know Jesus, they may be alive, they may be sucking air, and they may be doing okay and stomping around this earth, but in reality is, is that they are relationally dead. So what he's saying is, is in your old condition, you were relationally dead to Jesus. Now, here's the reason why we were relationally dead. Because he tells us there in verse 1, in trespasses and sins. So it was because of our sin and trespasses. The reason why... You were relationally dead is because of your sin. Now, that's really falling short of the glory of God. Do you understand? Falling short of His standard. Because let me just stop for a moment, because I have to make this point. 
because this happens when we come to church, we like to categorize sin, do we not? We like to say that there are some really bad stuff, and then there's some okay ones. Like the little white lies we say. Like when the phone rings, or cell phone rings, somebody picks it up. Who is it? Aren't you glad for caller ID now? Who is it? Oh, tell them I'm not here. And then if the kids, especially when they're younger and they don't know any better, they do, well, I'll, I'll tell her, and then you're like, why did you, I told you not to tell them. Little white lies, we, we think they're okay, don't we not? But the fact of the matter is, folks, any sin is a sin before God. It's all a reproach to Him. It's all wrong, and it all makes us relationally dead to Him. And he uses the other term, trespasses, there. So, again, that we're transgressing what God has, has stated and so forth. So you were spiritually dead. Now, here's the other thing. Now, let's get into verse 2. Because what he's going to tell us now is because we were relationally dead to God, and when you're relationally dead to God, God is not influencing you. Do you understand? When you have no relationship with him, there's no basis for God leading and guiding in your life and, and, and giving you direction. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because a lot of times in our relationships, we receive direction from our relationship or influence or from our relationships, do we not? In fact, that's why we tell folks, especially folks who are in recovery, folks who are dealing with, with issues and so forth, that a lot of times they have to change their what? Friends. Because their friends will what? Influence them. So when you're talking about being relationally dead to God, there's no influence there. So who are you going to be influenced by? Well, verse 2 and 3 tells us three distinct things that we're influenced by. Look with me at verse 2. In which you once walked according to the course of this world. Let's stop there. We're going to talk about the first area. When you talk about who we were before Jesus... You were characterized by the lifestyle of this world. Now, let me just stop for a minute. That in itself, that's pretty benign. Because even the most moral person in our society who doesn't know Jesus is relationally dead to him. But what he's influenced by is what? You know, the, the lifestyle of our world, which is both good and bad. A lot of times when we talk about the lifestyle of our world, we often think of the bad stuff. But we know good people who are going to hell, they're not influenced by the bad stuff. They're influenced by what? Just the way we live our lives and our culture. So what he's trying to point out here is when you're relationally dead to God, you're going to be influenced... And who you're influenced by, number one, is the world system, the culture, the way the culture does things. And it's so easy to do, isn't it? I mean, I remember between churches, when we left Canada, I didn't have a church to go to when I, when I resigned from my church there. So I had to work for a little bit in the area. So I worked down in Indiana County. We lived in Indiana County. I worked down in Indiana County at a publications plant. You say, what in the world's that? It's a printing place. They're 12-hour shifts. Terrible job. No breaks, no lunch. Now, they told us we had that, but 
I don't understand how they, well, they just never, you never got a breaker lunch. You just kind of ate there as stuff came off the press, okay? Uh, well, anyhow, I noticed at this place that about 15 minutes before it was time to get off, people were disappearing from around the presses. And they would all go over to the time clock and kind of wait there. Maybe that was the 15-minute break. I don't know. Okay? They would, they would wait until then, you know what I'm saying, they would take that extra 15 minutes for themselves or whatever. And, and you know what? And it didn't matter who the new guy was because after a while, everybody what? Did it. Now, what am I, I'm not going to say whether that was right or wrong. You have your own ideas about that. Okay? What I want you to see was is that that was the culture within that plant. And guess what? Everybody was influenced by that. Do you understand what I'm saying? Everybody did that. Now, you think about your workplaces. There's a culture at your workplace, isn't it? And it's not like, I mean, it's just a general flow, and everybody knows what the general flow is there. You know the general flow right here in our community. You know, there's a culture right here in Kerwinsville, in Clearfield. Okay? There's a culture in the United States. And what happens is, is rather than influence, be influenced by God, you are characterized by the what? The lifestyle of our word. Now, you say, I don't know if I agree with that. Well, I can already tell you that that is true. You say, well, how do you know? Well, I noticed that not too many of you were dressed like they did in the 80s. Notice the hairstyles have changed. How many, I mean, I look back at the pictures from the 80s. I'm thinking... Holy cow, I thought those were cool times, but boy, did we look rough. You know? And then I look back at my baby pictures and see what it was like in the 60s. Man, I'm glad I didn't live then. You know? Do you know what I'm saying? Now, why is it that we dress differently now? Well, what changed? What changed the style? Yes, the style, the culture. And so you are influenced by what? Culture, okay? Everybody understand it. Here's the next thing you're influenced by. Look with me again, verse 2. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who works in the sons of disobedience. Now, let's go on here. Here's what we're going to see. We were influenced by Satan before salvation. Here, I want to put something to death here this morning. Because a lot of times when we talk about the enemy, we are more influenced by Hollywood and popular media than we are by the Bible. Does everybody understand me? So it's a very popular theme. It's been a very popular theme for centuries in literature as well as in, in, in uh, visual media and so forth. This whole concept of, well, you know, you your own self until you sell yourself to the devil. And so every once in a while you'll see a movie They'll probably have somebody like Robert De Niro or somebody or, or Al Pacino or somebody playing Satan. And the guy, the main character, you know, he, he's down on, down on his luck and things aren't going well. So he sells his soul to get wealth and whatever to Satan. And everything's going well until Satan wants him. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Those movies are out there. Here, I'm going to be honest with you. That's total garbage. The fact of the matter is, is this. Without Jesus, you belong to him. Because he's the God of this world. That's what the Bible says. 
And the reality is, is that before you became a believer, you were relationally dead to God. Therefore, you were influenced not by just the lifestyle of this world. You were influenced by Satan and his minions, by the satanic system. And you need to get a you need to grasp the reality of that. And see, here's the thing. I, I like to refer to Satan as the biggest button pusher there is. Because he doesn't need to possess you to influence you to get you to do something. He just needs to know what buttons to push in your life. Do you understand what I'm saying? And you need to grasp the reality of that. And for some of you, he knows how to push the buttons. Why do you think it says, be angry and sin not and don't give what? A footing to Satan in your life later on in the Scripture. Because when you're angry and anger controls you, you're out of control, then who can get control? Satan. Through what? His influence. You understand what I'm saying? So what I want you to see is in your old condition, you were relationally dead to God, you were influenced by the culture, the lifestyle, you were influenced by Satan. The unsaved are responsive to the leading of the enemy. That's your next point there. The unsaved are responsive to the leading of the enemy. There's one other area. Look with me. Verse 3. And among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Here's what I want you to see. The next point there. Our conduct was in keeping with the desires of our flesh. Let me just stop for a moment, because when you look at that verse there, verse 3, there's one key word that will throw you off. And how it will throw you off is your understanding of it. So when you look at verse 3, it says that we lived according to lusts of our flesh. What happens is, if you have a wrong understanding of that word lusts, you may think that you were okay, or you're okay right now. But what I want you to see there is, is that oftentimes in our thinking, when we, in our culture, our sensualized, sexualized culture, we think of terms in lust with reference to what? Sex. And that, to be honest with you, is a component. But the term actually here is a lot broader than that. It actually has to do with any extreme desire that you have. So, for instance, how many of you cannot function in the morning without your cup of coffee? So when you get up in the morning, you can't function. What are you wanting? You're desiring, you're lusting for a cup of coffee. How about if we say it that way? How about you chocoholics in here? You know what I'm saying? I, I mean, you, and listen, we got to wake up to it. We need to wake up to it because everybody else is aware of it. When you go to Walmart, have you noticed that there is a reason why the aisles are so long and they have those shelves there? And what do they put on the shelves, folks? Chocolates. And have you noticed they're a lot more expensive there than if you bought a whole pack of them? whole sleeve of them back in the candy section? Do, do, you, do you understand what I'm saying? What are they appealing to? Advertisement, you ever notice most, have you noticed that there are very few advertisements that are blah? 
they're mostly made geared to what? Appealing to your what? Desires. I mean, all you got to do is watch your kids. They see some, you know, commercial for some toy that they never knew existed, and all of a sudden, what do they want? Can't live without that toy. You know, and, and so what I want you to see is, is that you were influenced by three main things in your life. You were influenced by our culture, the lifestyle of our culture, the world system. You were influenced by Satan. And now you're also influenced by what? The desires of your flesh. And believe me, you want to know how much your flesh desires and how much you give into? How many of you have ever done the spiritual discipline of fasting? How many of you have ever fasted? When you fast, you will realize real quick how much control your body has and your mind. Because you will begin to desire things that you didn't desire before. So let's, let's, take, let's take something benign for a moment. Let's say you decide to give up soda pop or pop or soda, whatever you want to call it, Coke, whatever. Diet Coke, Diet Pepsi, whatever. Let's say you desire, you say, I'm just going to give it up. How many of you think it should be fine? I'll just give it up. It isn't that easy, is it? Because the moment you give it up, guess what you're thinking about all the time? And everywhere you go, they have it. Isn't it true? I mean, it's in the soda machine at work. It's it's there at Walmart, right there. You know, if you're not went to the chocolate, just turn over here. There's a cooler. You know? Why? Because you are influenced by what? Your desire. Here, can I be honest with you? Here's what. You are addicted. Another way of saying what we're saying here is, is that you were influenced by your addictions. You understand what I'm saying? You were influenced by your addictions. Now, there's one other component that he tells us about our old condition that you and I need to be aware of. Look with me at the last part of verse 3. And were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Here's what I want you to see. Here's the last part of helping you to understand who you were before Jesus. We were subject to God's condemnation and punishment. You were subject to God's condemnation and punishment. Here's the reality. Before you became a believer in Jesus Christ, you were relationally dead to Him. But not only that, you were influenced by all these other things, but the ultimate thing is is that you were an object of God's wrath. What does that mean? Basically, you were a condemned criminal. Now, let me just stop for a moment. Let me explain that word wrath to you because that is very important that you understand that because usually we, have, we enter into biblical texts with our own thinking concerning terms. So when we think of wrath, we think of somebody who is what? Out of control. Somebody who's really upset and angry and out of control in his response to an offense. You understand what I'm saying? We think of an emotional response. This is not what we're talking about here. When we talk about the wrath of God, it is not an emotional response. You'll want to write this down in your margin. It is a judicial response. Here's what I mean by that. 
I'm from the state of South Carolina. Uh, I, don't, I think they've changed, but I remember growing up in, in, in South Carolina. We have, you know, they, they do have the death penalty there. Pennsylvania has the death penalty. But in South Carolina, they use it. They execute prisoners. And at that time, now I left there 20, 20 years, uh, 24 years now. I left there 24 years ago. But at that time, the instrument of death there was the electric chair. They electrocuted you in the state of South Carolina. Now, here's what happened. When someone is found guilty and they are sentenced to death, is that a, an emotional response of the state towards that person? Anybody? What is it? It's a judicial response. And that person sits on death row, what, an object of what? The state's wrath. And at some point, when the state executes them, if they ever get executed, in some places they don't, they just stay on there forever, they become what? They face the wrath of the state. This is what we're talking about here. This is the term that's being used here. It's a judicial wrath. It's not an emotional, out-of-control thing. But when we talk about a judicial response, this is what we're talking about here, it's, it's not emotional. So God, because of the penalty of our sin, we have been what? We are dead to him, but we are also carrying a death sentence. And when we die, if we don't know Jesus, we're going to face his what? Judicial wrath, which means we're going to go where? To hell. See, this is the thing that happens. You know, when you talk to someone and they say, well, I don't know if I can believe in your God. Who, what kind of a God would send people to hell? Like it's some kind of emotional response from God. No, God sends people to hell because they deserve to go to hell. Because judicially they have what? Transgressed against God. Do you understand what I'm saying? But the reality is, is that you are dead relationally to him, spiritually to him. You are influenced by the, what, the culture, the lifestyle of our world. Satan, by your own desires and your own flesh, and you were what? An object of God's wrath. You were an object of God's wrath. That's who you were. We're going to look at who we are in Jesus now, our new condition that we're alive in Christ. So I want you to notice with me verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. So what we're going to look at now, we'll spend the rest of our time today looking at, is the whole issue of what it means to be alive in him. So the first thing I want you to see is, is as we talk about God making us alive, I want you to understand the nature of God. So you understand who we were beforehand, 
the first thing you've got to grasp as we understand who we are now as a believer in Jesus Christ, who you are if you have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in your life, you've got to understand the nature of God. Here's the first thing. God's mercy is without measure or unlimited. God's mercy is without measure or unlimited. So the first thing I want you to see is, when we talk about who you are in Jesus, the basis of who you are in Jesus comes out of His mercy. And His mercy is unlimited. It's without measure. There's no way to measure it. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's no end to it, it's basically, you can say. When God talks about extending mercy to you, there's no end to the mercy. It's continual. In fact, again, let's talk about the ocean again. Think about the waves. Is there an end to the waves? I mean, yeah, there's a low tide and a high tide, but do the waves keep coming in? Do they ever stop? Not that I've ever seen them stop. You know, so, I mean, it, and that's a really a great picture to talk about the love, grace, and mercy of Jesus. It's continual. It's, it's unlimited. And so because of his mercy and because of his grace, which is unmeasured, I want you to see that he did a work for us. Now, the basis for the work is the fact that he loved us. God loves us with a great love. Now, let's stop there for a moment. Some of you need to grasp that point. Here's what happens with us. I want you to listen to me. Sometimes it is very hard for us to comprehend God, to understand his character and understand his actions. And oftentimes when we talk about God, we often need a frame of reference. Our primary frame of reference should be the Bible, because it is the Bible where God reveals himself to us. The problem is, is that for a lot of us, it really doesn't matter what the Bible says, you allow your experience and your past to dictate what your concept of God is. And so for some of you, your concept of God may be like what your parents were. So maybe you had very disciplinarian parents who, you know, every time you did something wrong, the hammer fell. Do you know what I'm saying? And so your concept of God is, is that he's just waiting for you to do something wrong so he can what? Drop the hammer. In fact, when something goes, how do you know that, you're, that your concept of God is like that? Well, think about the last time something went wrong with you. What was your first reaction? Was it to say to God, why are you punishing me? Do you know what I'm saying? See, that tells you what your view of God is. Now, what I want you to see is, is that he is very clearly telling us that in our new condition, a precursor to our new condition, is the react that God is abounding in mercy to us. He's unlimited in his mercy. And the reality is, is that he loves you with a great love. Let's stop for a moment. Maybe we need to take it one step further here. Maybe you've got a messed up definition of what love is. Do you understand what I mean by that? Because maybe you grew up in a dysfunctional home where love was communicated but never really expressed in a true way. 
Do you understand what I'm saying? And so sometimes your concept of love comes out of that experience, and so you have a dysfunctional concept of love. I'm going to explain something to you. That is not the love that God shows us. Do not equate it in your mind. It's beyond any love that can be shown in this world, period. Healthy or unhealthy. Does everybody understand me? So he's loving you with a great love. This is the God who is going to be really as the precursor to who we are in him right now. And I want you to see, verse 5 tells us, verse 5 starts with a key word there, even when. If you want to underline those two words, even when. Here's what I want you to see. Even when we were spiritually and relationally dead to God. So God, even though you were separated from him, even though you didn't have a relationship with him, even though you were dead to him, he still loved you so much. You know what I'm saying? It's not a conditional love. So again, think about it. Here I am. I'm dead to him. I don't want to have anything to do with him in my life. I'm, I'm totally oblivious to him. And I'm just doing my own thing. And when I'm doing my own thing, I'm actually sitting against him. He still loves me in spite of what I'm doing against him. Now, isn't that a different kind of love? Isn't that a different kind of love? Think about that. I mean, let's, let's, let's be real for a moment, okay? Some of you are in family situations where if somebody does something wrong, you maybe don't talk to them for a long time. And you just don't feel the love anymore. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know what, I'm, you know what I mean? And especially if they keep doing it, the, the feelings of love are not there. That's how we operate as humans, but God doesn't operate that way. God's whole concept of love is completely different. It's a God love. And He loved you even in spite of the fact that you were doing stuff against Him. Even in spite of the fact that you were headed to hell, he loved you. Isn't that what John 3.16 says? For God so loved the world. So that's the reality of what we're going to see here. So then what happens then is here's what he did. Verse 5 tells us, look with me. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Here's what I want you to see. God made us alive with Christ through grace. So when you think about his unlimited, unmeasurable mercy, his love that he showed towards you, even in spite of you, he made you alive. Now, being made alive, what does that mean? He created a relationship with you. You're not just alive spiritually now, but you are alive, what? Relationally now to him. You know, sometimes I think, you know, in our circle of churches, we have done such a disservice to salvation. We have reduced the whole concept of coming to Jesus down to just praying a prayer and then you're okay, you don't have to worry about hell. And we've missed so much of what is rich within the Bible. And what is rich within the Bible is, is that I now can have a relationship with a God who shows great love to me, whose mercy is beyond measure, who loved me in spite of me. 
Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? It's like we, we, we've dropped that whole concept. Here's our salvation message. Uh, you know, uh, Jim, do you want to go to hell? Well, Jim, just pray this prayer. How many people, I mean, when you meet people down, most I'd say about 80% don't want to go to hell. I mean, for most people, they don't want to go to hell. And so you, you tell them, all you have to do is pray this prayer. We're missing the great, greater picture of what salvation is. The greater picture of it is, is that God in His great love, in spite of us, made you a relationally alive to Him again. That you could have a relationship with Him. Isn't that awesome? And it was by His grace. Now let's stop for a moment. What's grace? Now, the theological definition is unmerited favor. Now, Here's what I'm going to tell you. Don't write that down in your notes. Here's what it means. You can write this one down. Getting what you don't deserve. Getting what you don't deserve. That's grace. So he made you alive in him, relationally alive to him, through grace. That is, you got it because you didn't deserve it. He did it for you. So then verse 6 goes on and tells us something else he did for us. Now here's something. I mean, you may be totally oblivious to what he's done for you here. I want you to see what he says here. Look at verse 6. And raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now here's what I want you to see. He gave us a new position. He gave us a new position. Romans 6, 4 says this, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. We also should, what? Walk in newness of life. What's he insinuating here? That we too were raised up to what? Walk in newness of life. So what's he saying here? He's given you a new position. When you accepted Jesus Christ, you weren't the same old person anymore. You are a new person who has a new standing, a new focus, a whole new outlook on life. You're new. Now, here's what the enemy does. Remember what I told you about the enemy. He's also known as what? The accuser of the brethren. Why is he the accuser of the brethren? Because he doesn't want you to understand that you are a new person. He wants you to focus on what? What you used to be. What you used to do. He wants you to focus on the stuff you did. Isn't it interesting that you... Have you noticed that... Uh, I know when you get older, your memory fades. Have you noticed that? But there are some things you don't forget. Have you noticed that you don't forget the wrong stuff you've done? How many of you have noticed that? You maybe can't remember a good thing, but you can sure remember when you did something wrong. And have you noticed that sometimes those memories come back when you don't want them to come back? Can I tell you, you got somebody helping you. Because not every thought is your thought. What he's seeking to do is to keep you from what? Focusing on who you are now in Jesus. And the reality is, is that you've been saved, relationally alive in Him, and that you've been raised up 
a new person, a new position. Do you understand? You're a new person. That's what he's saying here. Now let's go on. What else is he saying here? Verse 6, 7, he said, talked about seating us together in heavenly places. Verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So what's he saying here? He's, he's exalted us. He's given you a new standing, is really what it's talking about here. You have a new position, but a new standing. Now, what do you mean by standing, George? Well, um, a lot of different things I could use for illustrations. So some of you, you maybe you've worked in a company for a while, and I remember when I worked for the airlines, when it came to seniority, I was the low man on the totem pole. What does that mean? I wasn't there very long. So when it came to making decisions about something or, 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 or whatever, did I have any standing there? Usually when you have seniority, you have what? Standing. We, we understand it in terms of colleges when professors or schools, when teachers have what? Tenure. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a position where you have, because of who you are, and the standing you have, you have certain rights that belong to you. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? This is what he's saying here in the passage. He seated you in heavenly places, and look at verse 7. When he seated you in heavenly places, look what verse 7 says, that in the ages to come, that is in the future, he might what? Show the exceeding riches of his grace in kindness towards us. What's he talking about here? He's talking about when he blesses, he's going to bless you because now you have what with him? Standing. He exalts you. Isn't that awesome? Here's another way of saying it. You have an in with God. You know what I mean by that? Now, that doesn't mean he just answers any trivial thing you ask. Like, he hasn't given me that big truck I want. The, the reality is, is that you have an end with him. You have a standing before him. Now, let's go on. And then verse 8 and 9, he's going to talk about that he saved us. Look at verse 8 and 9. Now, 8 and 9 we know because we, we know these scriptures. We, we quote these scriptures. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that of not of, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So let's go through this. First of all, the means of salvation. It is by God's grace that one's saved. Again, what's it talking about here? It is by the reality that you're getting what you don't deserve. Because what do we deserve, folks? You've got to grasp that point. I mean, listen to me. I don't care how good a family you came from. I don't care how much education you have. I don't care how morally pure your life is. The reality is, is every single one of us are on level ground as far as what we deserve. You deserve hell just as much as Osama bin Laden. 
Do you understand? So the reality is that when he does save us, it's by his grace. It's because we don't, we're getting what we don't deserve. Now, here's the key to faith. Here's the key to salvation. The key to salvation is faith. Now, let me just stop for a minute and explain to you what that word faith means. It is more than just a simple belief. Because the fact of the matter is, a lot of people say they believe in Jesus. That doesn't mean they're saved. James even says that. The demons believe and tremble. Faith is more than that. Faith is a commitment to a trust in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what the reality of faith is. And so then again, he says, it's not of ourselves. What does that mean? Salvation has nothing to do with you. Again, it is not your pedigree. It is not your scholastic achievement or lack of. It's not your social economic status. It has nothing to do with you. Pride cannot enter into it and say, well, you know, hey, I'm here because of me. I did this. It has nothing to do with that. Here's the nature of salvation. Here's what he says. Salvation is God's gift to you. It's a gift. Now, let's again, let's quit thinking about gifts in terms of human standpoint of gift, because you think about Christmas when we buy gifts for each other. Usually when we buy gifts for each other, most gifts are not pure gifts. Have you noticed that, Dad, when your kids buy you that cheap cologne or a tie and you don't wear one? It's, it's not a pure gift, is it? It's because they tried to figure out something to buy for Dad. Okay? And because what they're, it's kind of like a gift with a big giant string attached to it. The string is, what's in it for me? What did you get for me? That's the concept of gifts that we have here today. Guys, you know what I'm talking about when you buy your lady a gift. She sees right through it. That's not God's concept of a gift here. God's concept of a gift is a true gift. Salvation is a true gift, not because you deserve it. It's God's gift to you with no strings attached. And so what does he say to you? The reality is, is what? Salvation has nothing to do with you. You can do nothing for salvation. There is not a thing you can do for salvation. There's not a thing you can do for salvation. Nothing. No amount of giving in the offering plate, no amount of time showing up here at the church, no amount of giving to special causes, no amount of good deeds, outweighing your bad deeds. First of all, how do you figure that out anyhow? No amount of any of that. There's nothing you can do for salvation. It's a pure gift. A pure gift. Now, here's the other aspect I want you to see about it. This is the, we're going to focus on verse 10. There's really about four key thoughts here out of verse 10 that we need to see about what we are in Jesus now. Because of salvation, look at who we are. Look at what verse 10 says. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the first thing I want you to see is he says we're his workmanship. What does that mean? We're God's masterpiece. The word that talks about workmanship here is the same word that could also be used for masterpiece. You are God's masterpiece. So let me stop for a moment. Some of you, when you look in the mirror, you don't like what you see. And if this is especially true when you get older. 
Because when you're younger, you have dreams of what you want to accomplish. You have dreams of marriage. You have dreams of a house. You have dreams of hobbies. You have dreams of what you want to, where you want to be financially and everything. Everybody know what I'm talking about? When you're younger, you've got dreams. When you get older, this is where midlife crisis comes in. You find out what reality is. And for some of you, you can't look in the mirror because you don't like what you see. And so you look down on yourself. You know what I'm talking about? Because when you look in the mirror, you see the failures. You see the disappointments. You see the destruction. You have the regrets, the shame. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, none of that was there when you were younger, but now when you're older, and a lot of us here are older now, so I mean, I mean, I'm still young. But yeah, you keep, Mike's pointing. Yeah, my, my hair gives it away. Okay, or lack of hair. Um, but the reality is, look at how God sees you. You are to God a Rembrandt. Guys, Michelangelo's David. You know? And that's what you are to him. Oh, the Heisman. Okay, I mean, whatever. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? When God sees you, you're the Mona Lisa. You are, actually, can I be honest with you? His concept of you is greater than our concept of those masterpieces. You are his special masterpiece. Think about, I, mean, I shared this verse with you a few weeks ago. Think about Psalm 37. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and what? And he delights in them. God has pleasure in your life. You're his masterpiece. Isn't that an awesome thought? Isn't that awesome? Now again, who's the accuser of the brethren? Who's the liar? Who's going to communicate to you accusation and lies? Because he wants you to focus on what? Who you were before. He doesn't want you to understand who you are now. Do you see my point? Let's, let's go on. Here's what he says. You are God's masterpiece. What? We've been placed into a relationship with Jesus. We've been placed into a relationship with Jesus. Created in Christ Jesus. That talks about we have been placed into a meaningful relationship with Him. Now, why? Here's our new purpose. You understand? You've got a new purpose now. Verse 10 tells you what your new purpose is. Why you are here. Why He saved you. It isn't just for you to sit back and say, Well, I'm waiting for it to end. No, He's got a purpose for you. Here's what it is. We've been saved to serve God. Look what it says. Four good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He saved you for a purpose. You know, that, that blows my mind. When I think back to April of 1985 in Columbia, South Carolina, on Green Springs Drive, my mom and dad's house in my bedroom that night when I got back from the college campus after going to a 
Christian groups meeting there for the first time and, and going home and reading the entire Gospel of John in one night. I found myself by my bed asking for Jesus. I had no clue what he had prepared for me, but the reality was is that in salvation, he had prepared for me beforehand what I was to do and to serve him. He already, here's, here's, what, it, here's what I want you to see. He had the job description already written. God had a job description already written for you. Isn't that awesome? I mean, he saw you fit to do whatever he wanted you to do. Quit beating yourself up. He's the one who directs your steps. Because he's prepared these good works beforehand for you to do. You've been saved to serve him. So it brings up our final point here. God directs our service. Man, it took me a long time to grasp the reality of this. A long time to grasp the reality of this. Because, you know, in my immaturity, I thought that I was the one to decide where I would serve Jesus. And so I would get frustrated when God would not take me to places that I wanted to go and serve him. You just get frustrated when he, through circumstances and situations, would direct me somewhere else and bring me to Kerbinsville? Do you know what I mean? And, and, and I'm constantly reminded when I go back to where I came from and I tell people, Where are you at? Where are you serving the Lord at? I'm in Kerbinsville, PA. Where's that? Nobody knows where it is. There's only one of them in the entire United States. God knows where it is. He directs us for His purpose. The sooner you get a hold of that, the sooner you grasp it, the sooner you'll be set free. Do you see who you are in Jesus now? Do you see that? Okay, next week we're going to uh, we're going to talk about who we are as a church because of Jesus. Again, we're going to look at who we were before without Jesus as a church, and then who we are because of Jesus now as a church. Okay, let's close our time in prayer. There is coffee in the back. Get some coffee.